verse 17. So if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. We're going to go from 17 through 38. Now, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am coming to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Be careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Now I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those who are made holy. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most of all that the word he had spoken, they would, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. Um, Jesus, uh, you gave me the opportunity to uh, prepare the wood. Uh, but we need you to... Uh, Set the fire, set it ablaze this morning. Uh, Jesus, we pray that you would, through your word, and set hearts ablaze as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began a series uh, called A Church and Its Pastor. Um, that was me uh, last year. I've trimmed up a little bit. And that's uh, the model of our new church in five years. So we're just hoping for that. It's really good. It fits sunrise. It's very modern. And... We're a young church uh, with, with not a lot of experience with a pastor, and, and you take into account that most of us come from different backgrounds when it comes to church. Uh, I was talking to various people this week. I talked to people who has, have never been to a church, like this is their first few months going to a church ever in their lives. I talked to people who have kind of attended a church, but maybe didn't get involved, really, on a deeper level. I talked to people who 
been involved more deeply in a church. And I've talked to people who, for whom church was like their second home. And so we all come from different church backgrounds and, and situations. And so and I thought it would be important for us to talk about this subject. So over the remaining five weeks, we're going to take a look at, at two passages, um, both addressed to the same church. And these two passages have a lot to say, I think, to people like us who maybe are figuring out, oh, what's the church supposed to do? What exactly does the church do? Why do they have pastors? And, you know, what goes on with those pastors? And, and how do I get involved in the church? And what does it all mean? And why do we have this thing and where we sit together, we sing songs, and listen to people, person talk about Jesus? And that's what we're going to talk about very basically over the next few weeks. Uh, we started with the pastor, because we decided it was better to go with self-humiliation first rather than congregation humiliation. So uh, starting with me, um, so you guys can all point at me and laugh. And we talked about how a pastor is five things. pastor is a snow globe. pastor is a compass. A pastor is a trumpet. A pastor is a praiser. And a pastor is an executor. Obviously, these are all metaphors, and I'm not really these things. But I decided it would be nice to have a visual, since I'm supposed to look like these things as your pastor. It's a pretty high calling. I decided I'd just work on a visual this week. I got a little bit bored at one point, so let's have some fun. And uh, here's what I would look like as uh, the pastor being these five things. Can you put that up? There you go. That's me, right there. There should be, you can't see the stick figure in the corner, just to give you a model of what more people normally look like as a stick figure. I have a uh, globe for a head. Uh, the compass is my torso. Uh, on the right, that's supposed to be I'm appraising things. It's a calculator. You recognize that? A trumpet. There's a man who's an appraiser at the bottom uh, who's much better looking than me. I didn't have a sixth thing, so I just probably put an angel as my left leg because it's glorious, uh, you know, and pastors are glorious, so I know you love them. So that's what I would look like as a pastor, and I just want you to keep that image in mind. Whenever you look at me, remember the big fat snow globe is my head. Which fits me because I have a giant head. So uh, it's always good. Uh, we spoke about the first two things up there. Uh, we spoke about the head and the torso. The pastor is a snow globe and a compass. And we're going to move on today. And I also mentioned last week why this should matter to you. It should matter to you for a few reasons. Because eventually you'll have to decide, is this a church that I can invest in? And that I can invite friends to, Right? I really invest in this church and invite friends too. And, and while you might not think, oh, well, you know, pastors and leaders and elders, people like that, they just do all the behind-the-scenes stuff. I come for the friendships and the, the coffee and the food, whatever. That's all well and good. But the truth of the matter is, as I tried to convince you last week, eventually the character and the decisions that, that the leadership of a church make and, and who they are will come to the forefront. And will surface. Maybe you've experienced that in your life where uh, it, it reared its ugly head or it was a beautiful thing for you. Um, secondly, you'll have to decide, uh, <laughs> am I willing to be pastored and by this guy? Uh, that's a decision that uh, I fear when I say that because you'll have to make that decision as well. Um, thirdly, it should matter to you because it matters to me. That's what I said. And uh, because I need your support, I need your prayers and certainly I need even your accountability. And so, uh, even this morning, it should continue to matter to you. And we're going to talk about the pastor as a trumpet, pastor as a praiser, and the pastor as an executor. So let's begin with the pastor is a trumpet. Um, I could have used a lot of metaphors here, one with trumpet. Let's read 
verses 20 through 21 and 26 and 27, just real quick here. Paul says, look, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public, in this kind of form, and from house to house, meaning more personally, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus. He goes on to say in a similar vein, 26 and 27, if you go down a little bit. Therefore, I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I use trumpet because, uh, a couple of reasons. One, the trumpet's used throughout history to declare something, right? As a declaration, but not just a declaration, but to rouse people to action, right? When you think of a trumpeter, that's what they do. Like, they, they do the big... I don't want to make it. People come, right? That's the idea of the trumpet. People love it. And it's that way, actually, uh, in Hebrew tradition and the Old Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, the trumpet was used for three things, which are big calls to action. It was used for uh, a battle. It was used for God's coming, usually in terms of judgment. And it was used to talk about the resurrection, people being roused from the dead. In fact, Paul himself was a Jew, used that metaphor to talk about the resurrection, people being roused from the dead. He says, I'll just read this to you in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so, on the day when Jesus returns, if he returns today, the way you're going to be called to rise up with him is through a trumpet. It's a call to action. And I think they really do rouse. Anyone here like jazz music? Anyone a a jazz fan? All right, nice. That's actually pretty much more than I expected. Uh, Anyone here like country music? Okay, sorry. I had just nothing to do with country music. I just wanted to see. I just wanted to see what I'm dealing with here. Okay, so... uh, (laughs) I love jazz music, and anytime I hear guys like uh, some more, more famous jazz musicians, like uh, Louis Armstrong uh, back in the day, or now uh, a great trumpeter is uh, uh, Wynton Marsalis, whenever they play that first note of a great ballad with their trumpet, man, it, it just stirs my heart. Whenever I hear for the first time just the, the start of the trumpet, man, it does something to me. And I think that's what a trumpet does. It's why we had a trumpet in our wedding. Was it the only decision in the wedding that I made? Yes, it was. But... <laughs> It was, a, it was a good decision because it was a rouse, you know, it was a call to action. And it's a particular call of a preaching pastor like myself to preach in such a way that not only do I say things to you, you're hearing things, you're processing them, at times you fade out, I understand that. But it's my, my, my calling to preach in such a way that it rouses you to action. It calls you to action in your life. And that's not often the goal of many pastors, um, including myself at times. Many of us are tempted to be memorable. We want to make people remember us. It, it's, it's one of the great temptations of a pastor. And so we shock people. You've heard of shock jocks before, like disc, disc DJs. Uh, we shock, we provoke, we say provocative things. We often tell the funniest stories possible to get your attention. We try anyway. We go out of our way to make you remember the sermon. It's all about remembering the sermon. Um, when I first started out as a pastor, uh, I was a youth pastor near Chicago, Illinois, back in the States. This was almost 10 years ago. And I had this volunteer leader 
that I had just met named Matt, and he, and he waved me over one night to him just to talk to me about something. Now, Matt was one of these guys who in America we call a straight shooter, right? Which means in the rest of the world you call him rude, right? And, uh, but we're Americans, so we just do things like that. But he was a good guy all around. And um, he started telling me about a teaching he gave once that he swore the students would never forget. I mean, he was zealous about this. He was, he was convinced of this. Uh, they won't forget it. Go ahead, go ask him, he kept saying. And the teaching was on purity. And his, his entire talk centered around the fact that um, once in high school, uh, he avoided temptation with another female. I'm going to keep it clean for the kids out there. He once avoided temptation with another female um, by telling her he wanted to watch an episode of the Thundercats. Uh, the Thundercats, if you don't know, is an ca- old cartoon, like He-Man, uh, Spider-Man, what a, uh, I don't know, uh, Transformers, whatever. And it was actually the truth. He, he was in high school, and he avoided temptation by saying he wanted to watch an episode of the Thundercats, which was just hilarious to me at one level. But he wouldn't let it go. Uh, he, he kept saying, they'll remember this. I'm telling you, they'll remember it. Just go ask him. And he wouldn't let, at the end of the night, he kept reminding me, did you ask him? Did you ask him? I was like, dude, seriously, let it go. <laughs> but it got me thinking. It got me kind of anxious. I was like, man, will anyone remember what I say? Like anyone? Thankfully, uh, along came a professor of mine at the seminary uh, who was a, a pastor in his own right. And he said this, which was a good reminder. Actually, it wasn't a reminder. It was a new thing I'd never thought of. He said, the goal of preaching isn't for people to remember the sermon, but for the sermon to produce fruit in people's lives. That's the goal of preaching. Not for people to remember things but to rouse them to action, to obedience in their lives. And so if you do that, if you remember one thing short-term, and it helps you obey God, helps you love Him more, helps you trust Him more, man, that's preaching right there. That works. I'll take it. And yet, of course, it's not me, but, but God's Word, as we see in this passage. And the main thing I'm asked to do as a trumpet is to not shrink. All right, this is the big thing. Uh, It's the link, actually, between verses 20 and 21 and 26 and 27. There's one phrase that links them, and it is not shrink. Just like as a trumpeter, you don't want to you don't want to belt out those weak notes, like those those wobbly notes, like as a pastor, I am called to avoid shrinkage. I want to avoid shrinkage, and so, namely, I'm called to not shrink from dishing out to you anything that is profitable, as it says in verse 20. And declaring the whole counsel of God, as it says in verse 27. Now, I mentioned those two verses because it leads us into an important question. Why would a pastor be tempted to shrink for giving you God's word? And I would say this. It's because it is the whole counsel of God. This is the hard part for a pastor, okay? Um, you mean not simply John 3.16? Yep. And sure, that's the core the Bible, but uh, yes. You mean not shrink from preaching on that part in 1 Corinthians 5 about sexual immorality? Yes. You mean not, pre- not shrinking from that part in Titus 3 where Paul talks about kicking a divisive person out of the church when they keep on being divisive? Yes. What about that part in Deuteronomy and Leviticus when it talks about uh, uncleanliness, personal cleanliness, and that part about building a parapet on your roof? I don't know what that means. 
But preaching on that too? Yes, if we preach on Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which we will be in March. No, we won't. But uh, still, we might someday. So we'll be looking forward to that. We preach all of God's word, and it's tempting to shrink because one, a pastor, two reasons. One, a pastor is himself uncomfortable with certain parts of scripture, just like you are. Just be honest with yourself for a second. I'm be honest with myself. There's certain parts of scripture that I do not want to hear, right? But like a vaccination that hurts, like, like spinach that tastes badly, or like that health drink that you or your spouse keeps in the fridge. God's word, while not always pleasant, is always profitable, right? We don't always like the things, but it's always profitable. I believe that to the core. Every single part of God's word. Secondly, I want you guys to like me. I do. I mean, um, I want you guys to like me. So it's hard to preach on certain things because you often walk away saying, that jerk, why did he say that? I know he was saying it to me. Um, and I don't know what to say about that, other than usually that's the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. But um, occasionally, maybe I will say something mean, and I don't need to say it. But I want you guys to like me. And thankfully, here's what some, something God does, and he does it through this passage. He redirects us. And that's why we see again, like, uh, we talked about last week, the compass shows up here again in these verses. What is, where does the compass point? Anyone remember? Due north, Right? And like Paul says in this passage, we are ultimately called to serve the Lord, pastors are. And he points us back to that in verse 26, where he says to the church, the elders of the church, I am innocent of the blood of all of you. That's a weird statement, right? I'm innocent of the blood of all of you. That, I, what does that mean? It was, it's a reference in the old, to the Old Testament in Ezekiel 33. What Paul is basically saying is this, look, I cannot be responsible for how you respond to God's word. I can't make you believe. I can't make you obey God. But I am responsible to respond to God. And he calls me to not shrink from preaching his word in full. See, if Paul did shrink, if Paul did shrink, there is a sense in which the blood of other people, the life of other people, would be on his head. And uh, that is a... Uh, Frightening responsibility. It's a responsibility that really does weigh on me, um, even as your pastor now. More important than being liked, it's being a compass and, and, and following God's call to preach all of God's word. One of my passions in life is to help people see that all of God's word is not only profitable, but relevant to life. And it's so hard to see that, isn't it? We, we just, we look at some things, if you read God's word, especially if you do the, you're like, man, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm just going to read the Bible. You start in Genesis. Okay, that's interesting. I'm now in Genesis 40. Well, Genesis ever in? I get to Exodus. And then comes Leviticus, and you're like, oh, please help me. Give me something about Jesus. It's hard, all right? It is hard. My hope is to help you see all of God's word as applicable to life. So, so when I preach, I'm not going to be typically one of these guys that jumps around from verse to verse. I'm going to pretty much stick in the passage we're talking about. And I'm not going to talk about, here's an argument why you shouldn't do this or should do this. Now let's look at a verse in Paul. Let's look at two verses in John. Let's look, about, look at a psalm about playing tambourines. Tell a cute story and I'm out of here. Okay? Because we're called to believe that 
all of God's words relevant, including the passage we're looking at. Number four, a pastor is an appraiser. All right? An appraiser. And we see this in verse 24 when Paul talks about what he values the most. So this gets to the question of what is truly precious to a pastor? What is precious to him? Okay, I just watched uh, Lord of the Rings this past week. I didn't have cable, and I just picked a movie out of our thing. And so I heard a lot about preciousness, and, um, you know, over and over. And so um, I thought a lot about this. What's truly precious to a pastor? Paul says this in verse 24, But I do not account my life, account. Notice an accounting term here, and it is in the Greek an accounting term. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only this, I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. That is this, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A pastor is accountable before God for constantly appraising what has been the most valuable treasure in his personal life. And thus the most valuable thing in his ministry to others. Because we know, you know when something's valuable to someone, you see it. You see it in their lives and it spills over to your life, right? If you just sit down with someone to have a cup of coffee or something for the first time and you get to talk with them a little bit, can't you start to tell what they value in life? The things they say. Um, It's not necessarily bad or good, but you get a sense of what they value. For Paul, it was to testify the grace of God. It gets to the gospel of grace. What is the gospel of grace? I don't want to assume any of us know what that means this morning, so I really want to talk about this for a moment. The gospel, the thing that Paul valued above all else in his ministry, in the Greek it's eugelion. It's, it's, it's what we call evangelical. When you, when you say it in English, uh, it's the good news. And the gospel saves us from death. That's what it does. But what is it? Why well, the gospel begins and ends with God? We'll start there. The gospel begins and ends with God. It begins with God because God is the author of the universe. He is all perfect. He is all good. And he creates man for himself to be in a loving relationship with him. But we have decided, and you see that, uh, it should be an image up here. Let's, let's, let's pan to that if we can. There we go. That, that's... It's a little bit washed out. That's God on the right. He's just all glory. All perfect. And he creates man to be in a loving relationship with him. But the problem, as we see in this diagram here, is we have said no almost from the very day we were born. Right? You know this with kids. There's a, a child I've heard during the service who essentially is saying, no, I don't want to be here. <laughs> We've heard it occasionally. And that's okay. Kids do that. We know it from the very beginning. They say no. And you know that feeling that crops up in your heart. You've known it since you were a kid. No, I don't want to do it like that. No, I don't want to do what you say. No, I want to do my life my own way. And essentially that's what sin is. It's a big no in your heart towards God. And the problem is that separates us from him. But here comes the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is basically God's love made active. Grace is God's love made active. Here's what I mean by that. Instead of, first of all, he loves us still and hates that we're separated from him. And so instead of staying high and holy in heaven, he comes down and dirty onto this earth. 
I mean, he takes on our stinky flesh. Imagine, I, just imagine God coming to be in a body. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, it's like imagining yourself getting into the shell of a crab and walking around. Imagine that. You're in a, you're in a crab shell, living life. I mean, that would be awful. I saw a crushed crab yesterday. It wasn't good for him. You know, I'm sure he did not enjoy his life that much, this very brief life. But God decided to do that, and he makes his love active in that way. He lives the perfect life that we couldn't through Jesus and dies as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's judgment for sin. God's a perfect judge. He said, I have to judge this because I'm perfect, even though I love you. So Jesus took on that judgment for us so that we could be with God forever through a reunion. And all we are called to do is trust Jesus. Trust that he forgives us, and that he is Lord. And he proved that he is Lord by rising from the dead. So basically, that's the gospel. If you want to think of it in a more simple way, here's this. Sin is basically this. The essence of sin is we substitute ourselves for God. And the essence of the gospel is God substitute himself for us by taking on the punishment for sin. So the gospel saves us, the gospel grows us. One of my great passions is not only the gospel great save, but it also grows us. So even if you know someone who's super spiritual or like uber holy, the reason they're that way, the reason you admire them as Christians maybe, is because they meditate upon the gospel every day of their lives. They come before God and they say, God, you are awesome, you are holy, but I still see sin in my life. And they confess it. They say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. Even if they're a mature Christian, and I'm sorry for my sin. And they receive God's forgiveness in their life. And man, that makes them love God more. That's the way God meant it to be. That's why they grow. You don't grow because you're like, I'm going to be a Christian now. I'm finally going to do good. No, you grow because you keep coming to God with your sin and he forgives you. And that's what I get passionate about. More on that some other time. But our relationship with God, I decided to make a visual for this. Um, I was in hell today. Our relationship with God is like a string he is holding. Anyone see this string partially? Here you go. It's a glorious string. It's like a string he is holding, and it bonds he and I together, all right? But when we sin, let's see, come on, scissors, I didn't test these scissors out. It snips away, right? And we're separated from God. But through the gospel, being part of our everyday lives, he forgives us, and he ties that string back together. I'm not going to tie this, <laughs> but it ends up continually tying the string back together until God on one end and us on the other are so much closer and our intimacy and our relationship. Are there some hard times? Yes. But we're so much closer as a result. So this is a memento for anyone. You're going to want this and eBay it years later. So I'm just going to leave it up here. But that's what the gospel is like. So much closer, even though we're separated, even though we feel so far from him. He ties us back together over and over again through his forgiveness. It's beautiful. So the pastor is constantly appraising things by the gospel. He's constantly looking at the gospel as his calculator, as his measuring stick, and saying, how do we make decisions? We make decisions based on the gospel. So the, so the pastor is compelled to make hard decisions. Things like, does the decision to postpone the broccoli salad luncheon uh, makes sense in favor of the canned food drive. Help the poor. Which one magnifies the gospel more? Right? Um, 
Does this ministry or event better afford us the chance as a church to testify to the gospel? Or should we do this thing? So a pastor is always making these decisions on what to do and how to listen to people based on the gospel. And notice there are always choices between good things, like most of our lives. And when you make choices between good things, involves the church, sometimes people are going to get upset. And sometimes people get offended and, and even hurt. But I got to say, as a, as a pastor, I've got to allow my head to hit the pillow at night. As long as those decisions have been appraised by the measuring stick of the gospel. As long as I don't make my decisions based on broccoli salad, I like broccoli salad. I could say, no, let's do the broccoli salad luncheon. Love it. Love the bacon. Love the mayonnaise. Bring it all in. All right, if I don't make my decisions by that and instead make them by the gospel, my head hit the pillow at night. Does that make sense? So a pastor is called to constantly appraise and make decisions based on the gospel. Lastly, a pastor is an executor. And of course, I don't mean the kind with the black hood that stands over a guillotine. Uh, that would be highly illegal, I think, even in the Cayman Islands. Um, but the kind of pastor who executes, uh, I'm talking about the kind of, sorry, uh, executor executes a person's will and gives the possessions left behind for a benefactor. What will a pastor leave behind is the great question here. What will a pastor leave behind? And it's a great question for all of us, right? You said this morning, you want to jot that, that question down. What will you leave behind? I ask myself, what will I leave behind? What will I leave behind for people this week? Right? This month, this year, when God calls me away from ministry or takes me home to be with him. What will I leave behind to you guys? Paul plainly tells the elders of the church what he will leave behind. And he tells them in verse 32. And you can sense this is kind of his almost last, even though it's not the last thing he says, it's kind of like the last thing he says. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Because that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Basically among people who are going to heaven to be with Jesus. He's saying, look, now I give you to God, I give you to his word. That builds you up. I want to talk specifically about his word. Because he leaves behind not only God's word, but the example, the memory of how he handled God's word. I mentioned before that one of my great passions is to help people see all of God's word as relevant to life, applicable to life. I believe this is a key role that a preaching pastor actually plays, that he's a set example in how to read, understand, interpret, and apply God's word for our lives. I, I think I am called to help do that from up front, with God's help, most certainly, so that people might listen and do likewise during the week. What? One of my favorite pastors, a guy named John Piper, constantly says this to other pastors. He says, show the people from the text. He's always telling people, show them. Show them how you got there. Don't just say what they're supposed to do. And it would be much easier, right, sometimes to think if we just did that. Right? In our flesh, we're like, I don't just go to church. The pastor will tell me what to do. It'll make sense. I'll do it. But man, that stinks. Because you never really learn how to feed yourself, do you? Right? We end up being like, like infants who are always relying on someone else to give us food. And we never learn how to feed ourselves. And that's what a pastor's called to do, is to help us feed ourselves.
One of the greatest gifts a pastor, I think, can give on Sunday mornings or whenever he teaches isn't what he says, but demonstrating how he found that out. Not necessarily just what he says, but how he found it out and showing you. So as we come towards the end of our sermon tonight, you might be thinking, so what? Okay, once again, a pastor, uh, uh, sorry, a sermon about a pastor. I could have preached this in the mirror. Uh, Maybe I did. But I, I could have, just by myself. Why would this matter to you? Well, I want to sum up the sermon today in a nutshell. If you remember nothing else about the sermon, remember this. In a nutshell, actually have a nutshell, which is fun for us. A pastor is called to believe the right thing before doing the right thing and to ask his people to do likewise. A pastor is called to believe the right thing before doing the right thing and he calls his people to do likewise. I'm going to explain this. First, you might have an objection to this. Well, look, I like a man of action. Right? I think a lot of us like people of action, right? Give me a man who will do something about it before a man is going to believe this or say this. Let me let you in on a secret on, about life. If you really want to follow a person of action or be a man or woman of action, over the long haul, you must be a man or woman of right belief. A belief in the right thing. Because in the Bible and in life, what you believe determines what you value. And what you value determines what you do and what you say. All right? And you know it's true because I have a diagram. All right? I've got a diagram up here. It's concentric circles. It's a diagram, people. Come on. It's there. So you know what actually happens in life. Paul realizes this. I'm going to explain this diagram here through some examples. Paul realizes it. He leaves behind to the church that which he most surely believes. I just mentioned it. He believes in God. He believes in his word. And so he says, I commend you this. I leave this to you. Because Paul knew if the church believed in God's word, what would they see in God's word? They would see the gospel. Because all of the Bible points towards the good news of Jesus. It's all leading up to this great crescendo of the good news of Jesus. He knew as long as they had that foundation of belief, they would get the gospel. And if they valued the gospel, then they begin to center their lives around it. If they centered their lives around the gospel, then what they say and what they did would be transformed. And they start to look and say things like Jesus did. Paul get that. Does that make sense? We see it in Paul's life in this passage. He believes strongly in God's word. This is what he believes. He believes in God's word. He leaves it behind to the people. And this meant he valued what God's word said the most, what it pointed towards the most, which is the gospel. And so his actions and words reflect that, right? What does he do? He, first of all, testifies to the gospel. He talks about it. All right? He also sits down. Um, he actually stops. He's on our way to Jerusalem. He's in a hurry, but he stops over to see the people he loves. He stops for them. He cares for them because God cared for him through Jesus. He prays with them because Jesus has risen from the dead and is powerful enough to answer prayer. Do you see that? Everything Paul did in this passage and said in this passage was because of what he valued, the gospel. And he saw the gospel because of what he believed, which was God's word. This is true not only for Paul, it's true in our lives. 
This week I talked to a guy who was a self-proclaimed adrenaline junkie. Uh, he loves any sort of challenge, especially physical ones. Uh, it could be something, this week it may have been something about kite sailing while, while eating a Wendy's value meal. He just loves the thrill of doing something hard. All right? That's what he likes to do. So let's trace this back for a moment. He likes to do this. What does he value? All right, so I'm guessing he values activities, environments, people who provide him with the sense that he is living life to the fullest and using each of his five or six or seven senses, and they're maximized. All right? But why does he value or prioritize this? What does he believe? I don't know, actually. I thought of a few things. He might, be, he might believe that he might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right? And so I'm just going to live it up. He might uh, believe that his life isn't that great, and he might as well risk it just to feel something in life. It's worth it. Or he might believe that God has created him, and he's created everything around him for his good, to relish each thing and each moment as a gift from God. These are all options. But they determine what he values, they determine how he acts. We also know it's true, because most of our sin comes from belief in the wrong thing. It comes from mistrust or misbelief. I'll explain what I mean here. Um, think about the person who talks badly about other people. All right? What does that person value? They value being appreciated, probably being heard by someone else. They just want to be heard, be appreciated. What do they believe? They believe that other people determine whether or not she's worth anything or what she's worth or he's worth, right? Versus believing God determines what we're worth. You understand? So it's a, they fail to, to, to believe the right thing, that God determines our worth. And instead, they believe that other people determine our worth. And so as a result, I'm going to have other people hear me. And if the other people are going to hear me, they're going to hear me because I'm going to talk badly about other people. Does that make sense? Another situation, I saw a man lose his temper at the licensing place this week. Uh, it's clear from this man, this is probably not the first time he lost his temper. And I thought to myself, what, what does that person value? They probably value being in control. Having control over the other person. And what do they believe? They believe if he doesn't do something about it, no one will. If he doesn't protect himself, nobody will. Versus, God will provide for me and in, and in his timing. Right? So, that, so they believe in the wrong thing. It starts there. That's what I'm trying to get across. And that affects the rest of their life because and, and, and this week, here's what I want to challenge you to do. Maybe, maybe even tonight, maybe even during the final praise song, write down something you normally do in your life. It could be a good thing, a bad thing, a neutral thing. And trace it back first to what you value about that thing, that activity, that thing you do, and then to what you believe, what fuels it. Because the pastor and all people who try to fix their lives often make the mistake of trying to fix what we do rather than going deeper to fix what we believe. I want to close with this story. We see it in the life, this beliefs, values, behavior, and in the life of a guy named John Smoltz. John Smoltz recently retired. I was a longtime pitcher uh, for a Major League Baseball team, the Atlanta Braves. Um, I like sports, so that's what we're going with. 
During his career, this guy changed jobs. Um, he went from a starting pitcher to a relief pitcher or a closer, and it's a very difficult transition. A relief pitcher or closer means that his job was to come in for basically one inning, a very short time, when his team was winning by just a little bit. And, and his job was to, at all costs, make sure the other team didn't score. Okay? So the only time he came to the game was to save his team. For years, being a closer or, or this kind of pitcher has been considered one of the top five, I kid you not, top five most stressful jobs in America. Up there with air traffic controller and actually NFL place kicker. Uh, there are jobs where uh, there's a ton of pressure and you get no praise or acknowledgement. You get no acknowledgement unless something goes wrong. These people do not get a lot of credit unless you <laughs> make a mistake and it's easy to do in their jobs. Well, John was very good at what he did. And, and, and someone in an interview I uh, read a few years back asked why he was so good at it. And his answer, I think, sums up this sermon. Two things he said. One, I believe in God's word. He said, two, God's word says that because I put my faith in Jesus, my eternal destiny is secure. He said, so I live by a verse in the Bible. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. He went on to say, because my eternal destiny is secure, I am free to do everything for God and not for other people. So really, there's no pressure when I go out there and throw. Let's pray. Jesus, in our lives, um, I just pray this week that we really consider this, that we would really take a moment to just jot down something we do and trace it back, to be honest with ourselves about it. Because what we believe really does influence what we prioritize, what we value, which influence how we behave or what we do and what we say. Jesus, we see it in the life of Paul and how he's called to be a pastor, that he valued God's word and believe in God's word above all else. Jesus, I pray that if we find in our lives that what we believe is a lie, what we believe is something corrupt, it's something dirty, it's something we don't want, that we'd follow the example of a guy like Paul who went back to his word, to your word, believed that, looked at that. That influenced what he valued, what he would prioritize, and that influenced how he acted and what he did with his life. Jesus, I pray that you would challenge us to consider this likewise in our lives, not only for the pastor, but for each of us here. In Jesus' name, amen.